And then we also wanted to show their thought process, because what's striking about this set of practitioners, teachers, professors, is that they're both very steeped in the classical medicine, all of them. They're very steeped in the classics. I mean, they know the stuff like the back of their hand. And at the same time, they've been involved in pharmacological research. So they look at, you know, what did we do in the avian flu epidemic? And what herbs in the lab uh, were showing up as effective? And they and they combine that. And I think there's a certain level of cynicism in the in Europe or in the States about integrated medicine, at least from some camps. And so I think part of what this book shows is that but when you need Chinese medicine to be included in a very meaningful and very complete way, comprehensive way into a healthcare system, like when you're in the middle of an epidemic, this is this is what you could do. This is another of our special edition podcasts that focuses on the coronavirus and the treatment of COVID-19. Shelley Oaks and Thomas Avery Guerin, both longtime residents of Beijing, recently have collaborated on the translation of various COVID-related materials that are related to the use of Chinese medicine, and they put it into an ebook form. This is not just a collection of formulations or studies, but additionally has the thoughts and clinical experience of senior practitioners who have been boots down in the middle of the epidemic. For all y'all that don't read Chinese, this contribution to our profession will help you to get some nuance and insight into how doctors in China are treating and learning from the coronavirus and using Chinese medicine at a scale commensurate to an epidemic. The ebook is available as a free download, and you'll find a link to it over on the show notes page. I would encourage you to contribute some cash to the kitty for these two. They've done some good work and have been very generous to make this so easily and widely available. I want to apologize in advance for the sound quality. We did the best that we could, but there are challenges when you're trying to tunnel through the great firewall of China. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. 
by switching to AccuFast needles. You'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. And again, I deeply appreciate Thomas and Shelley for the work they've done and for making the time to sit down with me for a conversation. Let's get into this. Hey friends, welcome back to this special episode of Geological. Today I have Thomas Avery Guerin and Shelley Oaks. These are two practitioners who have spent quite a while in China. They have recently released a book on the use of Chinese medicine in treating COVID-19. It's a gift to our profession and it's all about the various methods and ways that the Chinese have been thinking about in treating this illness in Asia. So Thomas and Shelley, delighted to have you here on Geological. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. You two have been in Beijing for quite a while. I'm curious first, let's get a little bit of background on you guys. What took you to China and what have you been doing there? Well, I'll go first. In fact, we've both been in Beijing since 2007. We came the same year, right before the Olympics. I originally came just to study. I was at a place in my practice in Louisville, Kentucky, where I felt like I I really wanted to learn more, and there really weren't any uh, master practitioners in the region 
that I could easily access. You were the master well, in Louisville. Yes, that's exactly it. And there are pros and cons to that. You know, some people really groove on that. And they say, yeah, I'm ready to go back and be the teacher and just be that, that person. But I felt like, especially, you know, I think a lot of people experience this as you, you get out of school and you kind of find your way, you start changing your methods, you deepen your thinking, you learn a lot more Western medicine as people come into your clinic. And then you want to learn more. At least that's where I was sort of five years, seven years out of the gate. So I came to China, came to Beijing to study with Wang Juyi. So I studied with him pretty intensively for a couple of years. And uh, long story short, I got married and had a child and that changes life. So I uh, continued to practice and study, but at a slower pace. And then I decided that I wanted to make a long-term life here. So I went to the China Academy of Chinese Medicine Chinese medical sciences, and I studied what's called uh, Wenxian, uh, Chinese medical history and medical literature, because that is one field in China. And uh, I did my PhD with the, the person, Liu uh, Changhua, who was the head of the institute at that time. And uh, since then, I've been doing research and translation when I, when I can and treating patients. I work at Beijing United Family, a big uh, private clinic now. And uh, that's kind of my life, teaching, doing clinical work, and translating. Sounds great. And Thomas, what about you? In the fall of 07, same time as Shelley. And I came under a little bit different circumstances. I was at that time uh, living in Hawaii and had just left the position as the head of the herbal, herbal medicine department at, at a Chinese medicine school in Hawaii. <laughs> And I was looking at doing some uh, graduate work in ethnobotany. At the same time, I was studying Chinese language and literature at the University of Hawaii. So I decided after about a year of studying Chinese there that it would really be in my best interest to come back to China and spend some time here and study language and look for you know, other potential study options. I really, you know, I'm a classic uh, foreigner and expat in China that, you know, I thought I was coming for eight months and that's now been over 12 years. So, you know, like Shelly, I, I have done various things here and I practiced and and then about four, four or five years ago, I decided that uh, uh, but, but sort of by a stroke of luck, I, you know, I, I was able to, to get into a position to do a PhD at the same institute, although in a different department. So I was at the resources, Materia Medica and Resources, DDAO Resources Center in this, also in the Chinese Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences. And I was really fortunate to uh, have a, an advisor who is actually one of the people that's in the book. He was one of the four uh, leaders on this adventure down to Wuhan. So um, on the steering committee, on the steering right. committee, right? Although he's not, he is not a, he's not a doctor, he's a researcher. So he's actually the president of the Academy of Science, the Chinese Medicine Academy, or whatever it is, China Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences. But he's a researcher, so he's a pharmacologist. So I've been exposed to all this really amazing um, scientific work that's being done here in China around agriculture and even some drug development stuff. So that's that's kind of where I'm at right now, and sort of coming out of that and 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 starting to do this kind of work that we just did. 
Yeah. Well, you guys are positioned really well with this. How did this book come about? What was the nudge that got you guys going with this? You know, it's funny because Shelly and I have known each other because I also studied with Dr. Wong and I'm pretty sure that's where we met. But anyway, we both studied there and we've, we've been pretty good friends. And in the last, I guess it's maybe been a year or so, we've become a little closer and started talking about doing some work together. And in fact, we had decided to do another uh, project together right before this. And it actually started a little bit on that project. And then this came about. There was... Well, we did the book on growing and Thomas said, you know, hey, I need an English editor. And at this point, I definitely consider myself more of a acupuncturist and, and history person because you can't do everything. But, you know, I learned herbs in the Chinese program back at uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, I do, I do some herbal medicine in my practice. I said, sure, let me look at it. I'll, I'll learn a lot. And so that's how it came about is this uh, very detailed book about specifically growing uh, how many herbs 180 no 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 this there's this there's this, this this only has 39 anyone who's ever done a, a phd knows that there's something you have to do for your teacher and oftentimes in the states you're teaching or you're doing whatever it is and here it's oftentimes you're doing some kind of translation or some kind of work for them so anyway i i you know i i translated this book that was uh, edited by my advisor and another one of my committee and then, and I needed I needed an editor because, as you know, it's 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 really hard to edit your own work. So oh, it's like impossible. Right, exactly. So yeah, you really need another set of eyes. Right. So Shelley came in and basically took what I had done and made it readable, which was fantastic. And uh, we produced a really a really pretty 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 nice book, I think. And and it's really it's the only thing available in English uh, that's really you know, has authentic information directly from growers and researchers in China. And there's over a hundred experts that contributed to the book. I think it's for people who have no interest in growing to just really realize what goes into processing and growing herbs. It's a much more detailed process than I had ever imagined, Yeah, actually. Actually, it was funny because I was, you know, we were chatting as we were going along and she was talking about, wow, this is really fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. So our, our herbal medicine is like way more involved on the back end than most of us realize. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what about this book? What, uh, I mean, other than the fact that, you know, coronavirus is, you know, a pandemic and it's all over the world. And what got you going with this particular book? Well, we were sitting here literally in China and uh, under quarantine because every, everything closed, even in Beijing, which is of course quite quite far from Wuhan. And we were looking at what was coming out uh, in English. And we ourselves did a couple of those basic protocols, right? You know, if you have stage A, B, C, and D, or if you want to use prevention or you're into recovery, you know, this is our suggestion of the formula that you use. And some of those plans throw in some acupuncture points and so on. But we felt like that was the most basic information and it would be useful for people to have a lot more. So in that process of kind of thinking about what would be useful to our community and looking at what people were putting out at other sites, you know, we were looking at Heiner Fruhoff and what came out on some of the publication sites and so on, the chuns. And then in China, of course, there's intense interest from the Chinese medicine community here on so many levels. And people that were still in Wuhan, the lectures that we translate in the book 
all but one, I believe, uh, actually were given when they were still in Wuhan. They, they gave these Zoom lectures to the community. So there's something that's really targeted very specifically at Chinese medicine practitioners. And in a sense, actually, they're targeted towards people who are seasoned practitioners who've been practicing for some time. And we felt like that was really the most useful information. And when I say useful, I mean on a couple of different levels, at least. One is we, we hoped that people who are doing telemedicine and seeing people over some of these platforms and so on and delivering medicines to their doors, you know, we hoped that they would be able to look at all the different formulas from different regions and then decide what might fit their climate. Because when you when you see the book, you'll, you'll see that they all emphasize that. You know, it's not going to look the same in uh, Guangdong. And in fact, there's a recent uh, outbreak up north in Jilin. And I want to look at those formulas as well, because we're in a different season already, first of all, although not maybe it's, uh, it's not quite as warm up there yet, uh, but a completely different climate compared to Wuhan or Guangzhou. So I want to see how they changed the formulas. But we felt like these lectures uh, were very detailed. They gave a good account of what actually happens when you're in an epidemic and Chinese medicine becomes involved in that public health you know, they treated 50,000 people at one point. So we wanted to show that. And then we also wanted to show their thought process, because what's striking about this set of practitioners, teachers, professors, is that they're both very steeped in the classical medicine, all of them, but especially uh, Tong Xiaolin, who apprenticed and he has uh, some family lineage also in his background. They're very steeped in the classics. I mean, they know the stuff like the back of their hand. And at the same time, they've been involved in pharmacological research. So they look at, you know, what did we do in the avian flu epidemic? And what herbs in the lab uh, were showing up as effective? And they and they combine that. And I think there's a certain level of cynicism in, the, in Europe or in the States about integrated medicine, at least from some camps. And so I think part of what this book shows is that when you need and want, but when you need Chinese medicine to be included in a very meaningful and very complete way, comprehensive way into a healthcare system, like when you're in the middle of an epidemic, this is this is what you could do. So it's a reference in terms of that. Just to add a little bit to that, one thing is that, you know, we talked about this a lot, is that it's a living system, you know, it's not a static system. People sort of say, oh, you know, it has to be the classics. And it's like, okay, the classics are great. And that informs us. That's our foundation. But to think that Chinese medicine stopped 2,000 years ago or 1,800 years ago is, is insane. So I think what this shows is that you have people like Tong Xiaolin and the rest of them who are clearly, you know, literally can quote, you know, classic after classic in line. And yet at the same time, he's thinking, okay, so but this herb showed this effect in some study, whether it was a lab or it was an in-person study. And, and we, should, we should consider that even though that's not part of a classic formula. We, can, we, we should consider how we might modify this formula with that herb. So, so I think that's really important. I think the other thing Shelley touched on just briefly that I think is important about, especially the lectures, is um, the public health aspect, but also also the protocols. Like you know, so there's protocols. There's protocols from 
um, three provinces and then Wuhan itself. And then there's uh, acupuncture protocol and the recovery and the prevention protocol. Those are all put out by government bodies. And what it shows really clearly is that the government was trying its best to offer people, not just practitioners, but also people like regular citizens, advice and things that they could do to try to avoid getting sick, or if they did get sick, what they could do to uh, mitigate the symptoms and deal with it. And so... And, and the public health is also, from, from the standpoint of the lectures, you know, Shelley mentioned they, they treated 50,000 patients, but it, when you read those lectures, you find out that, you know, they, they were making these huge vats of formulas and giving, yeah, everybody got the same formula or, you know, vast numbers of people got the same formula, but that's really the only way you could do it. And to think that you could make individual preparations, individual formulas for that many people is, of course, you know, not, not really realistic. It but, wasn't practical. They couldn't get the actual raw herbs. They couldn't get someone to cook them right. and distribute them. It just wasn't practical. And there's a history of doing this. Even in the Jangboli actually exactly. mentions this, that I'm not sure which text is because he didn't reference the text, but how, you know, in the past they talked about making these big vats of herbs and giving them to the whole community. Well, and even actually people our age, uh, shared stories with me after I started writing this book about how when they were in elementary school and there would be severe influenza going around or something contagious like that, they would they would give them these vats of medicine at school, mm. which you couldn't do today, actually, even in, in Beijing for lots of reasons. But they were doing that as preventative medicine. And I think uh, that speaks to something that's really key in all of this, which we can unpack a little bit, is just the idea of an epidemic because this is a pestilent chi. You know, we know it's a virus. We know it's a specific, it's a beta coronavirus related to SARS and so on, but it's pestilent chi. It's not one of the six evils. So it's a, it's its own whole different thing. One of the things for me that's been interesting about this, you know, you say pestilent chi, and yes, there's a virus, and yes, there's a thing that it's doing in our bodies, and, you know, it's virulent. It'll burn through a population, which is why isolation can be really helpful in slowing the thing down. What I've noticed with this one is that because we are so interconnected with the internet, this thing not only affects our bodies, but it very severely affects our minds at yes. the same time. And so that, that's one piece, and we may come around and address that later. I'm just throwing it out there as, as something that I've noticed. The, the thing that I hear here in the States, and I think about for myself, because I'm also an herbalist, and I'm used to thinking about how it's important to create a formula for a particular person. Our medicine works best that way. And yet, when you're in a situation, I'm going to call it a public health situation, which is very different than like a one-on-one -on -one encounter. It's like, how do you deal with it when you're not dealing with like one person or a family, but you're dealing with cities or countries? And my suspicion is that's to some degree where the protocols are coming from. They're looking at how do we treat not just tens or hundreds of people, but millions of people. Right. So I think what, what's really important here is to recognize that it's true. There's no question that herbal medicine works best. The Chinese medicine and herbal medicine in general works best when you can tailor a formula 
to a specific person, given their constitution and the symptomology that they present in the clinic at that moment, right? But clearly this is not realistic in this situation. So I think what we saw here is we saw people with extensive experience with, and, and I don't mean just, you know, they, they didn't just read a bunch of books. They've actually worked on these other epidemics that have come through, whether it's SARS or etc. And they looked at what was happening and came up with something that was sort of, to be honest, I, I, it's a little bit frustrating. I, I see some, some people saying, oh, this is like a shotgun formula. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Okay. Let's, they just, let's just call it that, which is really okay, which is not to say that they, they tried to cover every single base that they possibly could see. What they looked at was, from my understanding, what they looked at was, here's the major problem. They identify, okay, this is a, a damp toxin, right? So what can we do? What, what classical formulas can we look at and how can we modify them and how can we build something that's going to be useful for the entire population. And they modified it. They didn't they didn't just settle on one thing and then just go. There were modifications along the way. And then as things as they got things a little bit more under control, then they could start to divide the population until into like mild and moderate and serious and critical cases and start to integrate some of these other things, but you know, one of the things they talk about and it's hard for me to even wrap my head around is arriving in Wuhan and seeing essentially chaos where there were thousands and thousands of people, everyone, you know, people are scared, people are getting sick, people are dying and, and everyone's all together, the and, relatives and the right, patients. Exactly. Cause they don't really know what's going on yet. And there's no one that's saying, okay, wait a second. This is a very highly contagious disease. We need to separate people. We need to have a quarantine. We need to find a way to slow this thing down. And there was there was so much controversy around doing the quarantine. And there was a lot of sort of side effects of that. I mean, for example, there were people, uh, you know, listeners probably don't really realize this, but this is right literally just days before the um, spring festival was about to start. So there's all these people in transit. And there were actually people that were in Wuhan, because Wuhan is a, is a major hub, transit hub. So there were people that had that got stuck there that aren't from Wuhan, Wuhan, and they were from going from somewhere else to their home, and they were stuck there with nowhere to go. So that was sort of like a, this unfortunate side effect of the of the quarantine. But had they not done that, I, I really I don't know. You know, we would have seen something way worse than what we're seeing in the U.S. right now. No question about it, because as you know, that's the largest migration in the entire world. That happens every year. And so literally people were going to spread that around the country to every corner, every single small village was going to get that. And at that point, there's just no, how could you possibly control it? It'd be, it'd be a complete disaster. So they made a pretty harsh and yet I think a perfectly sound decision to, to do what they did. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. 
The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I mean, from the, from the point of view of the virus, it would be the perfect time to infect an entire pop population. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like you couldn't plan it better for well, spreading infection. And it's not just China, too. Of course, a lot of people these days, you know, people that have means, they, they often, maybe they go home and have, you know, have the uh, New Year's Eve dinner with the family or whatever, and then they get on a plane the next day and go wherever. Uh, around the world because they because everyone has a has whatever it is 10 days off right. two weeks off so they go literally all over the world from there so you can just imagine what might have happened had they not done that I, it's hard to imagine actually it is the other piece is they didn't have the resources they sent right. thirty thousand medical personnel to to hubei and they wouldn't have been able to handle a major outbreak in another province. There wouldn't have been enough ventilators. There wouldn't have been enough medical personnel. So that was a piece of it as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, literally 30,000, can you imagine mobilizing 30,000 medical personnel, doctors, nurses, Chinese medicine doctors, the whole gamut, go to one city? Only in China could you pull something like that off. Exactly. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> And I want to say, you know, Thomas touched on the chaos. One of the things that's really endeared uh, Zhang Boli, yeah. the, the first lecture that we give, he's now the president of the Chinese Medicine University of Tianjin, but he was president up here in Beijing for a long time. He's 73, I believe. Mm. And two or three times he's cried on camera. On camera, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was being interviewed by a reporter when he was there for 80-something days on the front lines, came back. And, uh, and he was asked about what he saw when he first arrived and he started crying. And the reporter said, you know, you're, you're an old doctor here. You've been around a long time. You've seen a lot. Like, why does this bring you to tears? And at that point he said, it's because of the suffering. He's like the patience and the death that, that I saw. And, and it wasn't clear how we were going to be able to get this into order and how many, much more death there was going to be. So he's, he's, you'll see he has poems in the book. I mean, he's a very, emotionally alive, poetic, you know, re renaissance sort of person. And in another uh, interview, actually, he was in the, what do we call the two meetings here? He was giving his speech. It was his moment to speak. And he cried again. He was really trying not to, you could tell, but he just couldn't hold back the tears. And at, at that point, he was, he said it was because of the medical personnel. 
because he said, you know, people were just exhausted. It's extremely uncomfortable, you know, to be in those hazmat suits. You know, you sweat and you you try not to go to the bathroom because everyone call, every suit costs about 300 kwai. So you don't want to have to throw one away to be able to uh, change it and use another one. So he said the the personnel was really, really overworked and to the breaking point when he arrived. And the personnel in, in terms of taking herbs, were they doing these protocolized formulas or were they doing more individual? How did people stay healthy who were on the front lines? That's a really good question. And that's part of the indirect evidence for its effectiveness is that uh, you have a lot of reports, not only from Wuhan, but also from uh, smaller hospitals in Hubei that say, okay, we gave this formula to all, to everyone in the hospital, Every, everybody. everybody, you know, the cooks, everybody. like everyone that, that is in the hospital. Yeah. And guess what? We had zero people. We had zero, a rate of zero percent of infection among medical personnel. And they had very low rates also when they did this in, in Wuhan. So I, I'm always a little skeptical. I was going to say, especially in China, but you know, now with how we see the United States doing it, I can't be skeptical about just China anymore. How shall I say this? Underreported rates of infection. I remember being there in SARS back in 2003, and, and I remember when they finally started breaking real numbers, everybody started freaking out, but I was thinking, oh, good, now they're starting to tell us the truth. So, so when I hear things like, okay, they're in a hospital and they take these herbs and nobody got infected. There's always this part of me that's like, really? How do we know that? <laughs> well, we don't, is the answer, actually. We, uh, you know, unless you were actually there, there's no way you could know for sure. And what we'll find out in six months or a year or two years or five years, I, I, I have no idea. I will say this, though, that from my perspective, what I can see and that's only what I can see, that although I, I think there's probably numbers that, you know, the, the real numbers are probably not what we're seeing. I don't think it's going to be dramatically different than what we're seeing now. I really don't. I, I just don't. And, and, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm being naive, um, but after, you know, more than 12 years here, I don't think so. I, don't, I really don't think I'm being naive. Well, and there's also something I would say that's, mm, I'm going to call it trustworthy about having boots on the ground there, where, where you're seeing it, you're kind of in the soup of what's going on. I remember, again, you know, when I was there at SARS, it was very clear when the government was not being upfront, because all you had to do was look around you and you'd see that reality was not matching what was coming out on the news some degree seeing reality match what's coming out on the news. Yeah, so I actually have a friend, and my wife has a very good friend whose family is from Wuhan. So I was on um, in regular contact with my friend, and then she was in regular contact with her friend who was talking to her family. And so what they were telling us pretty much matched what we were hearing. I mean, there wasn't really enough of a discrepancy to think that they're that there's a, like a major sort of cover-up or something happening. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't, and we're not going to find out about that sometime in the future, but... It seems unlikely. It seems point. very unlikely at this yeah. point, yeah. Yeah, because we all have contacts. I also have two close girlfriends who went to school in Wuhan, and they're constantly in contact with those networks. And 
after the rates of infection went to zero. And this is also true in Beijing. Anecdotally, I know of, of cases that didn't show up in the numbers. So whenever there's a few cases, you know, you always wonder, are there more? However, I think there's enough scrutiny at this point, if, mm. nothing, if nothing else, just through citizens and social media, mm. that I think the numbers are pretty close, including there was a lot of criticism, you know, when they reassess the death rate. And I felt a lot of that was quite unfair. Mm. I, I think the government was actually quite transparent. They went back through all the records and they said, okay, some people were counted twice because they went to two hospitals. You know, they were tested positive at one and went to another for treatment somehow. And there were people that died at home and we tried to count those. And so now we think the death rate is approximately 50% higher. And I, I think they were trying to give an honest accounting and we're seeing now in New York and a lot of other places as well. It's very hard to count the people that, that die at home. Just go back to that word chaos. I mean, really, you know, you lived here and you can just imagine just the sheer numbers of people and facilities, and it's just hard to keep track of everything. And so yeah, for, for, for the Westerners that haven't been there in, in that milieu, it's it's hard to fathom. Right. Yes, just the population density alone, I think. People don't realize what that means. No. It's like the most crowded day in New York every day. Right. You know, it's like a parade in New York, you know, like the New Year's Day parade or something. Every day it's like that here. So There was a principle uh, at work here. And I think it more or less was carried out, which is that they tried to save everyone, regardless of age. And so there's some some cases that we see in the media now, you know, people in their 80s and 90s, and even a few people that are uh, around 100 years old, and they spared no expense, because you have to realize that this was all free treatment from the government. And now that's actually changed because they want to discourage people from you know, doing things like uh, coming back to China from abroad for free or potentially free medical treatment. Especially, you, I don't know if you've read about, there's some rather egregious cases where people knew that they had tested positive for COVID-19 and came back to China anyway. And uh, one of them is now facing legal consequences because she knew that she right. was positive. So they came back to China because they knew they could get free treatment. Right. But in fact, there's two really uh, well-known cases here. Both of those people had corporate jobs and had actually quite good, extensive private insurance. It's really just a, it's a mentality. You know, we say, Jan want to get any little advantage that you can. But in general, uh, they, they spared no expense and they spared no, no effort and, and really did try to put people before profits. And was it a perfect effort? No. You know, were there, were there holes in it? Were there things we don't know? Were there, were there certain kinds of local practices that really show the, the, the holes in the system and the incompetency and the fact that people don't want anything bad to happen on their watch? And so there was some of that. That's just it. people in general, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is, for sure. And, and uh, you know, when, when Shelley says, you know, they, they spared no expense, keep in mind, one of the things that... Uh, it's it's in I think it's in John Borley's uh, lecture. He talks about you know they they contacted you know drug companies or, or herb manufacturers and said hey guys we need help and they said what do you need when do you need it what can we do and they just did it I mean they just did it they didn't worry about I mean you know it might have something to do with the fact that it was John Borley on the phone or whoever it was on the phone but nevertheless 
you know, there was no, There's I, no hesitation. I, I really, yeah. I really don't think that those, the people that were on the other side, you know, on the company side of that phone call were thinking, how can I profit from this? They were thinking, how can I help? How can we stop this as quickly as possible? So, so it sounds like the culture was coming together. The country was coming together absolutely. in a way it brought a lot of cohesion. Absolutely. Yes. It really brought people together. It really brought out the best of people in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how we can get that to happen over here because we apparently are going in the opposite direction. Well, it has a lot to do with leadership. And I think that, interestingly, the, you know, the top leadership was fairly absent for some time, at least publicly. And there's lots of speculations about why, and I won't really, I don't really want to, you know, talk about that per se. However, the leadership in general, we need to deal with this. We need to do whatever we need, whatever is we think is right. And we need to do it now. We need to not worry about what it's going to cost. We need to not worry about people's supposed rights. Um, we need to save people. We need to build hospitals. We need to, you know. And, and they just did that. And it was really frustrating for me because when I was watching this happen here and cause I'm surrounded by it, I'm surrounded by, you know, my wife is Chinese and most of my friends are Chinese. Shelly's like my token foreigner friend. <laughs> so we're feeling this, you know, this cohesion, this like the country coming together. And then I'm, and then I'm, I'm hearing from friends and, and acquaintances on the other side of the pond talking about how this oppressive government is taking away the people's rights by locking locking them down and i'm thinking to myself wow that's really hard for me to wrap my head around because i don't see another way to deal with this and that wasn't the main voice here was you know that was a voice but it was definitely but it was not a, the majority as far as i can tell by any no, means. no 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 definitely not most, most well, people it kind of gets into that whole thing of is it about me or is it about we? Yes. And are you willing to sacrifice your personal comfort, your personal convenience for the greater good? And I saw a lot of that. And people could articulate that really clearly. People were very aware that they were sacrificing for the greater good. Now, there are other factors, to be fair. For example, fear of death and uh, fear of the virus. You know, there's a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of rumors. Uh, though I have to say the rumors in other countries are, are not any less absurd than some of the rumors that we've heard here, you know, seeing people burn down 5G towers in the UK and so on. But there was a lot of fear because you have to realize this was the beginning. I mean, it was truly a novel coronavirus. Right. We didn't know what it was going to do. Was it going to lead to a lot of long-term effects like the fibrosis that was caused by SARS? I mean, we didn't know. And they, they actually solved fairly quickly that there was asymptomatic transmission. It took a while for that to be confirmed, but sporadic reports of, of that came out actually really quickly in pretty, China. Pretty People just were paying attention. Right. So I think I think fear is, you know, obviously it's a, it's a pretty strong motivator, but but here probably more differently than especially in the US, where, you know, you have people that are acting this macho thing, like, I'm not gonna, you know, give in to this thing that could potentially kill me, you know. People here are like, well, if it could potentially kill me, I'm gonna do everything I can do to avoid it. And they're willing to do that. Well, I'll right. just stay home. You know, it seems to me that because in China there's more people and because in China 
they've got a lot more experience with epidemic disease than we do in the United States. We're kind of new mm -hmm. to that rodeo. Sure. Whereas right. in Asia, you can pretty much expect every couple of few years, something's going to burn through the population. Maybe not a pandemic like we have, but there'll be a SARS or there'll be an avian flu or there'll be a something. It just seems to me there's more, I'm going to call it cultural memory about what these things can be like. Well, I, you know, I think you might want to look at the various flu viruses, viri that have infected the United States and how the public health community has dealt with those compared to how the public health community has dealt with them here. And I think, you know, there, there have been some pretty serious outbreaks that have killed a lot of people in the United States and other places, but they're viewed differently in the public health community and the community of the society at large than they are here. Here, there's a very strong aversion to anything that, that might injure you. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see the way parents or, you know, my in-laws think about these things. I mean, for them, for example, like, so, you know, I play hockey, but for them, that just seems like that's just too dangerous. Like, why would you ever do something that was so dangerous? And I'm like, well, it's fun, but it's just, you know, so what I mean, so what I'm trying to say is that it's just a non-starter. So, so in, in the case where there's this potential danger from a virus, it's just so it's just so programmed um, culturally to be averse to that kind of danger. So, so there's an yin and yang to that, right? Yeah, for sure. And and so now it's so so now we're we're in this place where you know we've pretty much opened up. For example, I can go to my office. Um, they don't even take my temperature anymore, which is not true in every situation. But but it, you know, in my office, it's like that now, and. There's a lot of people, even on the street now, that are starting to not wear a mask. Yes. But, you know, like I was telling Shelly, we, we had a meeting last week in town. And when I came out of the meeting, there was a, you know, a, a pregnant woman and her mom or someone, you know, walking on the sidewalk. And I saw the moment that the mom saw me without a mask on. And she, like, stiffened up and immediately, like, directed the, the pregnant woman out into the street to go around me. So there's still a lot of fear. And part of that's because I'm a foreigner. Part of it's because I'm not wearing a mask. Part of it's ignorance because at a certain right. point, cases were only coming in from the outside. And even though 90% of those were actually from ethnically Chinese people, that message doesn't always come through. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, those foreigners. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's true in any country. Absolutely. The same yeah. thing over here. And, and we're lucky that in, in general, there's been no violence. I, I have heard of a couple sporadic cases. There were some problems. Yeah. And, and then uh, Guangdong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Against, against the, the African American community. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of serious. People yes, were thrown yes, out of their yes, apartments. Yes, and, and that. yes yeah. absolutely. That was, that was bad. Uh, but I think they've gotten none of that under control at this point. And, you know, one of the things I was, I haven't had a chance to look all the way through your book, but I've, I've gotten through a little bit of it. One of the things I was very impressed with is um, at one of the temporary hospitals, Zhang Boili and uh, Liu Qingquan, uh, was it the, the Zhangxia Temporary Hospital? Yes. They, were, they talked about, 
that they weren't necessarily, I'm using air quotes here, treating patients, but they were doing what they were calling, again, air quotes, service to patients. And that service to patients very much included things like listening to them, being attentive to them. I mean, things that we often say are missing here in the the doctor-patient relationship in general, but that there was this like air of caring and people were doing like Qigong and they were getting Gua Sha and they were attended to. They were they were actually cared for by other human beings that were looking out for their well-being and taking herbs. And evidently, the rate of people that went from like mild or moderate to worse was extremely low. Right. Yes, it was zero in that hospital and most others overall, it was between two and 5%. But I also was really struck by that. I thought, wow, they have a holistic model of healthcare delivery. They celebrated birthdays, sure people felt cared for and listened to. And there's been a lot of talk about that also in terms of recovery, that people had trauma, especially people that ended up in the hospital and on ventilators. I mean, it's, it's traumatic to not be able to breathe. You know, it triggers your whole nervous system, your whole spirit, and many people came, came close to death and then survived. So there, there is discussion about healing the trauma. So this holistic model of treating people in the temporary hospitals really included, of course, just creating a community and making people feel safe. And now that we're dealing with recovery instead of people being treated for the disease, Uh, The government is also trying to figure out ways to get people psychological counseling for trauma, uh, to sort of create online groups of people that that all suffered from COVID-19. But there there is an acknowledgement at this point that that people are going to need some psychological support. So I want to give listeners a more complete picture of what happened here. So you had communities of people that were in Wuhan and who had potentially been exposed to the virus through neighbors and family members and so on, especially in the beginning, before people knew they had to quarantine and practice social distancing. So that was one population. And then you had people who had mild and moderate disease uh, who were in these temporary shelter hospitals. And then there were people that were in the hospital wards. And then some of those, if they became more critical, they were moved to the ICU. And so in the hospitals, people were getting individualized decoction medicine. In fact, in the, in the ICUs and all the doctors, uh, there have been several biomedical doctors as well, have commented on how harmoniously the teams worked together. The Chinese medicine doctors were changing these formulas, they said, sometimes three times a day. That's something you hear quite frequently because it's the nature of the disease. You know, they said one minute someone is fine and talking to you and and the next minute they they can't catch their breath and you don't know to use the ventilator or they're using ventilators and they're out of sync with the ventilator. And so I also want to say in those situations, they were using more than just herbal medicine. They were using acupuncture. There have been several accounts about how acupuncture was key to saving lives, actually. When, when people were not getting the oxygen exchange they needed with the ventilators, acupuncture. And that it really impressed some of the biomedical doctors on these teams that saw this. And, and the general feeling that you get when people talk about this is that it was a beautiful cooperation, that people were really setting aside their affiliations and their previous prejudices. And of course, there are prejudices on, on both sides of, of the medicines, right? They were setting all that aside and saying, what can you do? You know, what can you do to save this patient? 
and people were allowing all of that to happen. So in the ICUs, they were doing acupuncture and they were also doing massage and they were using plasters. And as people were getting better, you know, they were using ear points and even telling them, teaching them to do a sort of sitting badwanji uh, in the eight pieces of brocade. So just to kind of give a, a fuller picture there. And, and just to add one little thing to that is when, when they were giving herbal medicine, in, in a lot of cases, they were actually giving injections. Yes. Which which we don't have access to, or you don't have access to there, of, of course. But it's a very interesting thing. Like what, you know, they talk about uh, this, this formula that has a large doses of ginseng. And when, when uh, blood oxygen levels were dropped really low, they were giving significant amounts of ginseng in injection. And it was making very quickly making a marked change in their blood oxygen level. And I think I can I can imagine that for for a, you know for a Western medicine doctor thinking you know because all they really have, the only the only option they really have is to do the ventilator, and when that goes south and the blood oxygen is dropping, and suddenly you do this injection of this herb, which many of them think you know is just voodoo or whatever, and they can see right there on the machine. You right, know, the numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie, and then the patient starts to feel. Um, so I think. I hope that there's, from this, there'll be a better cooperation between the Western medicine community and the Chinese medicine community, because that's not always as cooperative as some people might think it is. You're not here. So it's, it's, it's not maybe so far apart as it is uh, in, in the United States, although in some ways it is. You know, I, I know some Western docs here and they, they just, you know, they know what I do and they think I'm crazy. You know, right. maybe they don't think I'm crazy. They just think that, you know, it's unscientific. And and I'm not talking about Western medicine. I'm not, I'm not talking about Western Western medicine doctors. I'm talking about Chinese Western medicine doctors. Right. Yes. Well, because, I mean, either way, it, you know, it's a point of view. Right. We think our medicine's the real thing. And those guys over there, well, we don't know what those guys are thinking. Right. I, yeah. I, I, I'd like to, like to get past this turf thing. I mean, really... We're all trying to do, I mean, we're all trying to help people heal. And we have a different point of view and we see how the body functions differently, but but ultimately our goal is the same. Yes. And so I really don't have any issue with people who practice Western medicine, except for when they practice it poorly. But I, but I have the same issue with Chinese medicine people who practice it poorly. Or, or any type of medicine when they practice it poorly. It has nothing to do with the medicine. It has to do with the person practicing it poorly, right? So I don't have a bias with Western medicine. And there's a lot of great things in Western medicine. They do a lot of things really, really, really well, you know? Some, some of that stuff that, that Chinese medicine can't do. Well, it has seemed to me over the years that the trick to practicing medicine well is to get the patient what they need when they need it. If you happen to have that, that's great. If you don't happen to have that, make sure they get it somehow. Right. That's right. exactly right. And if I step out of, off the curb and get hit by a bus, I'm really not interested in seeing an acupuncturist. Not right away. No. Well. Not right away. No. I mean, no. I'm. You know, I want to see the paramedics, and I want to probably are going to have to see a surgeon. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 
In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So you guys, in many ways, you know, you're in Beijing. I wouldn't say that's ground zero, but you're close to ground zero. And and certainly because you're in China, you're in that soup. You know, you've got a sense of what this thing has been, and you've you've had this opportunity to watch how the Western community has has um, treated this, to see how the Chinese medicine community has treated this, and more importantly, to see how the communities have come together yes. to to treat this illness. Curious to know what you're thinking about in terms of the future. You know, viruses don't go away in a season. Generally speaking, it's something that we as human beings sort of co-evolve with. Yes. And generally speaking, with pandemics, there's a second wave or a third wave, right? We're just getting through the first one here. I'd like to get your perspective on what we might be watching out for in the fall or next year or, you know, somewhere in the next 24 months. What are your thoughts? from what you've seen there and, 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 and where things are right now? Well, I think, first of all, on an institutional level, this is going to be a real turning point in China for Chinese medicine. I think a lot of people that were very skeptical before are really looking at this and saying, wow, if you can be helpful in this kind of situation with an acute contagious disease, then there's something we need to look at here in terms of what's the strength of Chinese medicine and where should it be incorporated. So there's a lot of talk now about uh, educational reform. Some people at the Beijing University of Chinese Medicine just put out uh, an article saying we need to include Chinese medicine more meaningfully in the emergency rooms and we need to include it more meaningfully for critical care. So I think that may happen and it happens to be at a time when there was already mounting government support and I think this will just sort of segue into that. Now, I think as a clinician, both thinking about us as individuals and, and as a group, I, I think this really leads us to reflect upon some interesting questions. One is epidemics, like we've talked about before. You know, an epidemic is something different. It generally manifests in similar ways in populations. And how do we address that in Chinese medicine? So the idea of prevention, I think is something that we need to start thinking about. Uh, personally, I'm not I'm not really optimistic about the development of a vaccine. I think that uh, certainly not my my field of expertise. But looking at all kinds of cases, for example, relative of someone who 
uh, was very seriously ill. She tested positive. She was asymptomatic, but she doesn't have antibodies. Just reading about a case like this. And with SARS, they found that antibodies didn't last. Even if antibodies do actually protect you from contracting the disease, which is an open question, they don't last. So there's not really good reason at this point to think that an artificial vaccine is actually going to deliver that. So I think we need to start looking uh, long and hard at prevention. So when this all started, people started asking me, hey, Shell, you know, what can it take for prevention? Even you know, Chinese friends around me that weren't in Chinese medicine. And at first, I resisted. I thought, well, we don't, we don't do that. You know, we see something. You have a thick white tongue coat and you're telling me you get bloated no matter what you eat. You know, you've got some dampness and spleen sheet deficiency. You've got something that I can treat. You know, your sleep is poor and I'm tweaking that imbalance. And that's a form of, you know, jiu bing, you know, treating illness before it best. And so what do you do in terms of, you know, there's this virus out there and you don't want to get it. So there are two approaches. You know, one, uh, the city of Beijing came out with some formulas that were actually not very aggressive. They were really in the category of what we call tea substitutes, daichain. So they're just giving you a little bit of moisture, uh, benefiting your, your yin a little bit, benefiting the lung chi, and that's really just a, a preventative from that perspective. But in other places, certainly in, in Wuhan and, and Hubei, and even in Guangdong, people were taking formulas that also included clear heat, resolve toxin herbs. Now they weren't taking uh, shigao, they weren't taking heavy duty doses, but they were taking small doses. So I think we need to, to think about that in terms of uh, where are you? What's your potential exposure? And, and what does prevention mean? I think it's not as simple as just saying, you wanna make the body as strong as it can be. We should do that. We should eat well and exercise and maybe look at some of the things that do increase so-called immunity, but you probably need to unpack that a little bit. And then Thomas and I have been talking about uh, looking at the microbiome. You know, there's evidence now that the microbiome in the whole body affects the pulmonary microbiome. And looking at something through the lens of Western medicine with that kind of research might actually lead to some very interesting breakthroughs in terms of what is immunity and what, what can we do to increase it? And can it be specific? Because general and specific, right, two different things. Two different things, right. So I think, well, first of all, I agree with everything that Shelley said. I think it's, um, we've also talked about this. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah we, this, is, this is not the first time we talked about this. So, but, but I'll, I'll touch a little bit on, you know, this, uh, this idea of microbiome. It's something I've looked at quite a lot in the last um, couple of years. And, and is what what led us to at least part to to a project that we're working on. Um, so, um, which is, you know, Chinese medicine practitioners know a little bit about um, our digestive process, right? And and how that's really the sort of the, the center of our body. In fact, you know, in the in the five phases, there was a, a period of time when when the earth was placed at the center, right? So. And, and because I've been very involved in agri agriculture in the last bunch of years um, and learned about soil ecology, and when I think about, you know, that, that earth phase and the soil ecology and the importance of that for it to nourish plants, which nourish us and other animals and, and are sort of the, the, the basis of the entire ecological system. And then I think about the, the earth 
phase in the human body being the spleen and stomach and that being sort of the basis of how we accumulate chi on a daily basis. So we decided that um, the, a logical step in this progression of thought was to look at the Pi Wei Lun and um, address this text. Um, I mean, we're not going to look at it from a scientific perspective. Obviously, we're going to we're going to do you know what we think is justice to the text. Um, but there's work around that already, right? Exactly, because there's there's, there's actually a, a fair bit of work. A whole lot, yeah. Not you know. Not necessarily people that are looking at it from the Chinese medicine perspective per se. There's people that are looking at the microbiome and looking at the microbiome um, specific to the gut and seeing how connected it is to not only immune function but a lot of other aspects of how the, how the uh, physiology in the body. So, um, so I think this is a, a really and it's an emerging science for one thing, but it's all but. When we look at this emerging science, I mean, at least for me, when I look at this emerging science, I am drawn back to this classic text specifically and um, the importance of that text and how important um, it is for us to um, maintain good health um, starting in the digestive system and how we can treat things both, both preventatively and, and certainly in, in more acute phases through that. So it sounds like it's Li Dongyuan. Yeah, Li Dongyuan. Meets, meets the microbiome and restorative agriculture. There you go. There you go. Something yeah. like that, yeah. <laughs> wow, I look forward to reading that. <laughs> it, it's sort of in, in, in some ways inspired by that. It, it, I mean, for me personally, it's a text that I've been interested in for a very long time. And... And it, it makes sense. I mean, when we started talking about this, was was you know just before this started happening, and then and then this this thing came out, and we thought, well, this is perfect because this is this is how we maintain health. And then, of course, it sort of morphed into like, okay, this is much bigger than that, and we need to deal with something that's more acute. To that's why you know that's why we released what we did. Um, but now we're going to go back to this this other place and. And we think it will have relevance. Uh, this virus is probably not going to go others. No, it's probably not going away. No. And I mean, I know the big thing over here that I hear practitioners being called to is get online and help people build their immunity, which to me is always a really curious question because we're Chinese medicine practitioners. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking air quotes here, immunity, mm -hmm. what are we really talking about is one of the questions I have. Right. It's not just and it, it and one of the things I come back to is is that strong central earth axis working well? Do we have you know do we have good digestion? Do we have good sleep? Is our system functioning as well as it can? Right. And and so often it's the earth element that is out of whack, especially in our modern world. Exactly. Well, I, I think, yeah, you're right, especially in our modern world. But I also think that in, it's a, you know, there's a reason why Li Dongyuan wrote this text um, now about, what, 800 years ago or so. Um, clearly, he saw it as an issue then. So it's um, maybe seems more acute now because of, you know, our the lifestyle and the kind of diet that a lot of us eat. But 
but clearly even 800 years ago, it was, it was something that was important enough for him to devote an entire book to. Well, I'll, I'll be looking forward to reading that when it comes out. We'll have to have a podcast conversation about it, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I just want to summarize a couple of things that I'm taking away from this. I want to make sure I'm not missing any of the, yeah. of the highlights that you guys have shared. I, I so appreciate the two of you taking some time and, and talking about this. I think for myself, one of the, the big things that I feel like I'm looking at the world a little bit differently now after having had this conversation is that when we're looking at epidemic disease, when we're looking at not just a few people, but thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people getting sick, on one level, protocolized type formulas might be helpful is what I'm hearing. And when you're dealing with large amounts of people, you've got to go at it from sort of a, a public health or industrialized type medicine perspective because you're sure. trying to, to take care of the sheer numbers. Yeah. And then for the more acute cases or the critical cases in China, that that's when they were using Chinese medicine as we're used to thinking about Chinese medicine. And so I'm walking away from this thinking, okay, there's the usual way that I think of working. And then there's like the epidemic way of working. And it might be helpful if we readjust our thinking a little bit. I totally agree. That was a very enlightening and thought-provoking part of doing this book for me to think about, okay, there have been 321 epidemics, major epidemics recorded in Chinese history. And it's easy to say, okay, well, before they had biomedicine, of course, that's what they did. There was nothing else. But in the modern era, you have swine flu, avian flu, you have COVID, you had outbreaks of scarlet SARS. fever, Japanese encephalitis, and uh, Chinese medicine played an important role in all of those. So I, I plan to actually to write a little bit more that, about that in the future, because I think that's an important use of our medicine that we haven't really uh, grown into yet in the West. That's important. So let's just finish up here. Just to hear briefly from each of you, what would you say your takeaways are? What have you learned from doing this book? Wow, what have I learned from doing this book? Well, one thing that I learned is how much, how little I know about Chinese medicine. You know, I, I haven't done a lot of translation. I've done some. I, I have another text coming out, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, so I think one of the things that for, for me personally was to work through some of this material with people who were approaching uh, something that was new but also old like that there was some foundation for in the classics but it was a sort of new occurrence of that and how they drew from all these texts that they had been studying for the last you know 30 40 50 years and some of those texts i had never heard of which um for me, it was sort of enlightening to think like, wow, at this point in my career, I mean, I've been studying Chinese medicine for over 25 years, and there's still texts I just have never heard of, that they're, they're quoting as if they were, you know, they wrote them themselves. So, so that, for me, was really enlightening and humbling, but also exciting. And, and I guess from the, you know, from looking at it, that's just looking at it from sort of my personal professional development or whatever, but 
looking at it from the perspective of, you know, having been stuck in my house for three months and watching what was happening here and then watching it develop, you know, overseas, first in Italy and then, you know, in the U.S. On, on one level, it, it was very touching to see, not just here, but, but, but in other places as well, including the United States, um, the way people responded to it. It hasn't always, I mean, you know, I think, unfortunately, we've, we've touched on maybe some of the sour notes, if you will, of the way it's been dealt with in the United States. But there certainly has been a lot of, you know, pure heartfelt effort and um, people taking care of each other and the human side of that and, and the humanness of that, I think, was really... I, I, I've, I've written a fair bit about it and maybe someday I'll publish that. I think it was really, for lack of a better word, it, uh, sort of emotionally raw and beautiful to watch the human spirit respond to um, such uh, sort of devastating and chaotic situation and with, with a lot of unknowns. You know, these kinds of moments... Indeed, it can bring something out of us that we didn't know was there. Mm. It can bring up latent, you know, aspects of us. And and so often in times of difficulty, yet on one hand you'll see people tear things further apart, but you can also see people come together in ways that you would not have imagined. Mm. You know, I mean, there's that old thing about you know in Chinese the character for crisis Weiji is both danger and opportunity. Mm. Right. And it's true. Absolutely. Shelley, what about you? What have you... Well, besides just gaining really another level of, of respect for people in, in our field, you know, along with what Thomas just said, like people who really care about other people, mm. people who uh, really... John Bully, for example... He had an acute uh, attack in uh, Wuhan and had to have his gallbladder removed. And he was trying to avoid surgery, but they said, you know, you have to. So he went and he, he had the surgery. And then as soon as he woke up, he continued working as soon as he could. I mean, that's an example that's very much in the public eye. But there were all kinds of people that were delivering medicines to elderly people, uh, even on a volunteer basis. You know, people that normally do your, your quaidi or they deliver your food. There were all kinds of ordinary people volunteering at these neighborhood committees. You know, all this this whole network that is rather invisible uh, to me as an expat because I don't have to deal with them. You know, they just came out of the woodwork, and you see all of these these people, and and that was very very heartening. But in terms of the medicine itself, it's really given me a different perspective on integrated medicine. I think uh, as a field, we need to think about. What are all the different uses of Chinese medicine? Eric Karchmer has written about his interviews. You've had Eric on this podcast, uh, interviewing people in their 80s and 90s who treated very serious diseases like Japanese encephalitis. And in fact, uh, just a few days ago, someone who's going to be 100 at the end of this year, uh, Lu Zhizheng, he uh, wrote an article reflecting on what happened in 1954 in the outbreak of Japanese encephalitis uh, just about an hour south of here in uh, Shijiazhuang. And it's fascinating how the same questions arose. They used integrated <clears throat> Western and Chinese medicine. 
And when the Department of Health sent teams to try to determine if the Chinese medicine had been effective, because it was a question they were interested in for public health reasons, they had to send three different teams because it wasn't clear and people didn't necessarily keep accurate records. And so finally, with the, the third team, they determined that indeed it had been effective, but it's such a parallel situation. They were giving people herbs very early, and so it prevented them from developing more serious disease. They were giving herbs to healthcare workers, and uh, they were treating people in the community. So I think those sort of epidemiological questions will always be there. And I think as a field going forward, we need to think about what is our medicine and how do we want it to be included? I, in some ways, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum from the people I was translating because I've moved more towards mind-body medicine. And that's what I see in my clinic. And in fact, at this point, I treat sort of half Chinese people and half uh, expats. That's what I see because I'm in this urban situation and I see a lot of insomnia depression, anxiety, and so on. But that's not all Chinese medicine can can do. Chinese medicine, if given the opportunity, can also be a part of emergency medicine, be a part of critical care, and be a part of this greater healthcare system and healthcare policies. So I think that the, the I hope that this work will also help people to, to think about that, maybe think about it uh, in creative ways, think about it in ways that are appropriate or could work in the United States. You know, a lot of us, I myself included, when I went to school in San Francisco, we worked at uh, free clinics. Mm. We would treat whoever came in the door. Haight-Ashbury has been doing that for years and lots and lots of other clinics, you know, treating people uh, with dual diagnosis that have mental uh, health issues and also have drug addiction issues and getting some really interesting results. So uh, I saw that out of this as well, you know, from a different perspective. So I'd like to see more, more of that happening. Well, again, thank you, both of you. It's been a, a little bit of a rough ride today with the VPNs and internet and time zones and all that. So uh, very, very much appreciate your patience with all this. I, I hope this comes through in a coherent way for our listeners. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about this book of yours. I'm going to put information for it on the show notes page so people can just go there and click over and get it. But if, if they're just listening and they want to go find it on the internet, where would they go? They go to uh, Passiflorapress.com. And uh, from there, it'll be pretty obvious, I think. Okay. And you guys are putting this out for free, but you're asking, well, you're inviting uh, people to make donations if they'd like to. I, I just want to speak to that just, just quickly because that was something that came for us earlier and we decided nah whatever you know it's not really why we're doing this and um but when i made the announcement last week um i got uh, several people on at, on the announcement itself and then i got several emails saying really you guys you deserve something you should do this and whatever comes comes and and, and so i talked to shelly about it and we decided okay i'll, I'll go ahead and put a thing up there so if people want to donate, they can. If they don't want to, that's fine. It's not certainly not a requirement. Well, I just want to make the comment that it's helpful for everybody that when you receive something of value, you exchange something of value. That's how the cheat keeps moving. Mm -hmm. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, 
If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.